Hello, everybody. Welcome. I'd like to welcome, welcome you all to the London School of Economics on behalf of the Crisis States Research Center and the International Humanitarian Law Project. We're gathered here to, to have a discussion tonight about a situation which is very dire, the situation of Somalia. Somalia I, I'm James Putzel, and I'm the director of the Crisis States Research Center and the a professor of, uh, of development studies here at the school. For, for us at the Crisis States Research Center, Somalia is a quintessential example of the horrors of state collapse. Last year, there were 6,000 civilians killed, and some 700,000 people fled their homes. Over a million, there's over a million displaced people, and 200,000 of them uh, fled uh, the fighting in Mogadishu in just November. Somalia is a, is a territory of contested authority, where there are multiple parties um, to, to the ongoing warfare. For 16 years now, Somalia has been a nation at war, or one might say a territory where a state and nation-building project launched after independence has failed. Guillermo Botocci, who's joined us tonight, is the current representative of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees uh, and based in Somalia. He's been there for the last two years, so it's a unique occasion for us to, to have some insight to, to, to what's going on. During his 19 years of service with UNHCR, uh, he's occupied different positions. He's been in Central America and Southwest Africa, uh, in, in Southwest Asia and Africa, and at the organization's headquarters in Geneva. He's going to tell us how things got this, to this, to this so bad, to this condition. And I hope as well how he perceives from UNHCR uh, the, the role that needs to be played by different international organizations. Uh, after after um, Guillermo Batochi speaks, we're going to have a short response from Chiloka Bayani from our law department, who himself has been traveling back and forth from Africa recently, and um, he'll raise some issues that will lead us into a discussion period. So we want to save a good amount of time for questions and answers. And uh, on that note, I'd like to, to welcome you and thank you for coming to the LSE. Well, thank you. Um, I would like to thank uh, LSE and the sponsoring institutions to host this, uh, for hosting this meeting today. And I think that this will be an invaluable opportunity to exchange information and ideas about the situation in Somalia that has been clearly described as a major crisis and according to some accounts is the worst humanitarian crisis today in the world, although it's not getting as much attention as other situations like Darfur, which is on the news uh, almost every day, and uh, Kenya recently with all the problems that they are facing. The situation in Somalia has been very, very bad for the last uh, 17 years, and it has really reached a point where there is a perceived fatigue on the international community uh, regarding the situation and forgetting that behind 
this um, situation, there are people who are actually uh, suffering. Uh, thank you for being uh, here tonight, and I hope that as Mr. Um, Nutzer said, we will have the opportunity to exchange some information. Uh, let me, in fact, start by showing you a few maps that will illustrate what are the concerns uh, in the region uh, about the situation in Somalia and why neighboring countries are so much involved in the situation. This map shows the presence of uh, Somali ethnic groups and ethnic clans in the region. And you will see that much beyond the Somali borders that are <coughs> illustrated by this yellow line, there are Somali clan and Somali people in Kenya, in Ethiopia, and of course in the Djibouti uh, region. So whatever happens in Somalia itself will have a consequence on regions, uh, on the countries uh, uh, in the region that host Somali uh, ethnic communities. And that's why, for example, and we'll come back to this later, Ethiopia decided to intervene in Somalia to contain what was being perceived as a movement to recover the greater uh, Somalia. Another map that will also explain some of the issues that we are facing today is this map that goes back to the colonial um, times. What you see here is the current Somaliland that was a British colony at the time. What is in purple here is what used to be the Italian colony of uh, Somalia. After independence, Somaliland decided to join the rest of the country and become part of the Somalia Union. But then there were tensions that we'll review in, in, in a minute, and uh, Somaliland has ever since 91 declared its independence and is now acting as uh, such. Um, There was a situation that lasted for some 30 years between 1961 and 1991 where Somalia was a normal country with a, a government of national unity and uh, a, a unified territory, a unified state. In 91, nevertheless, there was a coup d'etat, there was a movement led by several warlords that toppled down the Siad Barre regime. Unfortunately, this group of warlords that led the different militias that participated in this movement could not reach an agreement after they uh, succeeded in toppling down the Siad Barre regime and failed to establish a government that would reunite the country. And ever since, the country has been divided into different regions, each one controlled by different militias under the uh, leadership of specific lords, uh, warlords, uh, normally along uh, clan lines. In, in 91, as a consequence of this uh, action, there was a huge 
displacement of population uh, towards neighboring countries, but also within Somalia. And then years later, in the year 2000, in response to an attempt by the international community to reestablish a government of national community, there were some conflicts that were revived, and there was another wave of displacement. The situation remained as such uh, up to the end of 2005. After these two big waves of displacement, 91 and 2000, there were, by the end of 2005, around 400,000 internally displaced people inside Somalia. 250,000 of them were located in Mogadishu, living in over 130 different locations in the city, occupying public buildings, stadiums, parks, schools, etc. And uh, there was a large number of IDPs in Puntland, who by, which by then had declared itself an autonomous region, but maintaining its belonging to uh, Somalia as a country, and in Somaliland, which right after the fall of Siad Bawe declared itself an independent country and established that kind of a democratic process that still uh, prevails there. Uh, the UN and the international community uh, in, during these years had different interventions in Somalia, but unfortunately they collapsed and they failed, and you must all have heard about this famous Black Hawk Down incident where uh, some warlords uh, brought down uh, helicopters uh, by, uh, from the American army and killed 17 American soldiers and dragged them around the city. And a year later, following this incident, the UN uh, withdrew from Somalia because it considered that the conditions in the country were absolutely uh, uh, not conducive for any uh, US uh, or UN uh, presence. Since then, there have been 14 attempts sponsored by the international community to reestablish a government in Somalia. The 14th attempt in 2004 uh, established the, what is called now the Transitional Federal Government, or the TFG, which is the government that is currently recognized by the international community, headed by President Abdullahi Yusuf, who used to be, up to that point, the president of Puntland, and is, uh, in fact, uh, today uh, in undergoing medical treatment here in London. Um, but Abdullahi uh, Yusuf then heads the transitional federal government that is composed of members of parliament and ministries, many of them who were previously warlords. And that was a formula to bring together the conflicting parties in an attempt to establish uh, a national uh, government. What happened then in 2005 is that there was a very bad situation, very bad living conditions for those displaced in the southern and central parts of the country. The UN had no access, no presence there. Very limited presence in the Puntland area, uh, where is it? Here. And a very active uh, process 
in Somaliland where, for example, UNHCR has been engaged in a repatriation program for the last 10 years, uh, bringing people who voluntarily decided to go back to Somaliland given the stability that um, uh, was uh, present on that. Um, things started to change dramatically, though, at the beginning of 2006. First, there was the most severe drought in decades that affected the region, the whole country, and not only Somalia, but uh, other countries in the region. What happened then is that some, the Somali communities affected by this drought, who are traditionally nomads and people who have cattle, moved to other locations in search of water, in search of grazing lands. When they arrived there, they clashed with the local communities, and there was conflict, there were tensions. What we see normally in, in situation of conflict is that conflict generates displacement. In this case, it was displacement generating conflict and bringing the country in spiral of violence that uh, has not stopped ever since. Uh, in this map here, we have traced the displacement of people as a consequence of the drought that affected the country at the time. And you will see these yellow spots are the areas where people, displaced people concentrated. And this happened between January and August of 2006. At the same time, in January of that year, there was the emergence of what is known as the Islamic Courts Union, which is a conglomerate of Sharia courts that got together to fight against the warlords and to get rid of this uh, state of affairs. The ICUs engaged in a fight with the warlords in Mogadishu. The Somali population, tired of the abuses and extortion that they have been living uh, through in the hands of the warlords, readily supported the ICUs, and the ICUs managed to get control of Mogadishu very quickly, although in a very bloody Fight, but then they moved on and got control of most of the areas in South and Central Somalia, up to this point here, which is the border between Somalia and Puntland. There were no major displacements as a consequence of the ICU takeover, and that's something that it's uh, uh, not easy to understand because we're thinking about fighting, generating. Uh, displacement. There was some displacement in Mogadishu at the beginning of the conflict because of the fighting that happened in the city itself, but then after that, the ICUs really faced no resistance in taking over control over the, the rest of the country. By then, by July 2006, the Ethiopians who feared the pledge of the ICUs that wanted to regain the greater Somalia and that would then affect uh, parts of the territory decided to intervene and decided to stop the expansion of the ICUs. And that decision had already been taken by the middle of 2006. But what happened then is that Somalia faced the worst floods in history, in recorded history. And that stopped the Ethiopian intervention for six months. 
the, because of the flooding, any military intervention would have been indeed very difficult and would have been unsuccessful. So the Ethiopian army was massed at the border, waiting for the right conditions to intervene. And in the, in, in the middle of this, the Somali population were facing real severe consequences because of the flooding. Just to give you a kind of a gory example, but the floods made the rivers overflow. And with the waters overflowing, you had the crocodiles overflowing. And the crocodiles were going into the communities, killing people and eating people. So that kind of uh, dire situation faced by the people. And of course, the floods generated displacement of uh, massive numbers of people in the areas that are marked here in the blue dots. The Ethiopian army decided then to intervene and they did so on Christmas Day 2006. They first targeted Mogadishu, uh, attacked Mogadishu with air raids and uh, military uh, the heavy machiner machinery and that situation and whatever they uh, faced on their way into uh, Somalia generated further displacement, of course. That added to the displacement that had happened already as a consequence of the drought, as a consequence of the floods, and now because of, of the Ethiopian uh, invasion. And this um, displacement is marked in these maps with these brown uh, crosses. By April, the Ethiopian army declared May that they had defeated the ICUs. Some of the People who had left Mogadishu following the invasion of the Ethiopians decided to return to Mogadishu. But when they went back to Mogadishu, they found, for example, that those who had been living in public buildings were not allowed back in the public buildings because the TFG had claimed that they were back into business and that they needed the, their government buildings back. So they were not allowed the IDPs to go back to these buildings, and they were left with no options but to go back to displacement. Many went back and found their houses destroyed. And what happened next was uh, an emergence of uh, what I would call a guerrilla warfare resistance that the ICUs that had been formally defeated by the Ethiopians started to engage in and started to target Ethiopian and TFG uh, locations, bases. And that generated a response from the Ethiopian army, from the TFG forces, that affected the civilian population. And because of this conflict and this violence in Mogadishu, you have additional <coughs> displacement in and around Mogadishu, in the southern parts of the country towards the west and towards the north. Particularly, I would like to note displacement towards this point here, which is called Bosaso in Puntland, from where many people venture 
on very dangerous boat trips that would take them to Yemen and from Yemen to some other locations in the Arab uh, countries. But also displacement towards uh, Somaliland that did not welcome those coming from the south because they considered them as foreigners. Somaliland claims to be an independent country. We have to note also that by then the Kenyan government had decided to seal its borders. And Somalis that had already uh, in the past sought asylum in Kenya were prevented to do so. May, June, there was this process of return to Mogadishu, but then there was new displacement because of this generalized conflict that continues up to today. The, by November of last year, the estimated number of IDPs inside Somalia came up to one million. So from 400,000 IDPs in the past 15 years, in the span of two years, we more than doubled that figure. And this displacement, of course, is a decision that is taken by those who can afford to move, by those who can manage to leave the areas uh, where they are facing uh, violence. Those who are left behind, it's not because they don't want to, to move, it's because they cannot move. They don't have the means, they are disabled, they uh, are trapped in a situation where uh, they have no possibility to go away from the areas where they are facing uh, the dangers. So today we have a population in Mogadishu that is trapped, that is basic, basically composed of the most vulnerable people who have very limited possibilities to move around the city, who have very limited access to the most basic services, and who see their livelihood opportunities shrinking by the day. Those who have been displaced have gone in all directions, but in many of these areas where they have settled, access is very difficult for the humanitarian organizations, security is a real concern, and we are also facing a very negative attitude on the part of the TFG authorities and the Ethiopian uh, authorities who perceive any intervention in favor of the displaced people as support to the terrorists. So in areas where international staff from the UN agencies, from, from uh, the international NGOs, cannot go because of security concerns, the only possibility that we actually have to operate on the ground is to work through Somali staff. But if the Somalis working in those conditions are perceived by their government as supporting the terrorists, they feel threatened and they feel very limited in the capacity um, to uh, operate. And there are areas where we can simply no, don't go. The southern areas, and particularly Kismayo, where there's a large concentration of IDPs, is a no-go area. We have received reports this morning of a bomb blast that has killed four staff members of one uh, NGO, MSF uh, Holland, 
two of them internationals. Um, even Puntland, that was a very stable situation up to a few months ago, Puntland has invested, in my view, too much in support of the TFG and is paying the cost of, of this investment uh, these days. But in Puntland, we have had uh, humanitarian staff abducted, uh, journalists abducted, etc. So the security situation is very bad. And on top of that, just to complicate things a bit more, as of recent, there have been a flare-up of a conflict between Somaliland and Puntland on contested areas in Sol and Sanak in the border between Puntland and Somaliland that were contested but that were at peace. Now there's again a flare-up of the conflict and that is also generating more displacement and more uh, suffering. Now, in these conditions, what are the options left for the Somali people? If we think that the Somalis inside Somalia are facing the brunt and are suffering the brunt of the conflict, um, just to give you a couple of uh, examples of the ways of the, uh, in which this conflict is being uh, moved forward. Uh, the ICUs or the opposition drives in in one of this, what they call a technical, which is a pickup truck that has mounted a rocket launcher in the bed, launches an attack against the TFG or an Ethiopian base, and they move on. The retaliation of from the Somali TFG or from the Ethiopian authorities would hit the civilians living in the area from where these attacks were launched. Not the ICUs, not the terrorists that are attacking them, but the civilian people. Uh, if in Bakara market there's a roadside bomb that hits one uh, Ethiopian convoy, the response would be for the soldiers to come down and start shooting around to whatever moves affecting the civilian population. So people in the cities are facing uh, a very dangerous situation. Of course, um, issues related to uh, shelter, issues related to uh, water and sanitation, uh, issues related to access to food are affecting uh, the whole of Somalia society. Uh, Somalia has had a rate of malnutrition for the past 15 years above 15%, which is a threshold for malnutrition rates in emergency, in acute emergency situations. And it's not gone down. And this is the effect of a combination of factors that uh, are lacking. Uh, access to health services, access to um, education, of course, uh, are uh, very serious concerns. Um, and this is uh, related to uh, the conflict, is related to the lack of access, is related to the impossibility of having uh, 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 an intervention that would protect these people. I mean, there are some traditional concerns in Somalia related to clan conflicts, related to uh, the use of children uh, as soldiers, uh, landmines, uh, minority clans, etc., etc., that have been only exacerbated by the current situation. Rape is rampant. And I apologize for being crude and graphic, but in the Somali 
context, we have to understand that rape is a particularly heinous crime. Uh, the majority of Somali women undergo at the very early stage the most severe form of female genital mutilation that includes the cutting of all the external uh, genitalia and sewing the uh, vaginal conduit closed, leaving just a very small opening uh, for the elimination of urine. So when a perpetrator of rape wants to penetrate the victim, he would use a knife, he would use a glass, he would use a tin to cut the woman. And that on, not only increases the physical suffering, but that exposes the woman to infections, to all sorts of uh, diseases. And in the Somali context, it's very difficult also to find a woman to come forward and to denounce rape as a crime. And it would be of no use because the impunity is rampant. There's no authorities that would be in a position to intervene and to um, do something about these crimes. So the situation is deteriorating by the day. The situation is, in fact, uh, in the last uh, few days um, getting worse. So in this context, what are the options left for the Somalis? Many, those who can afford it, of course, decide to go out of the country. And they would venture either to take the boats that take them to Yemen and on the way face the risk of being drowned, of being eaten by sharks, of being thrown out the bore by the smugglers who don't want to be caught by the authorities, facing all sorts of um, dangers and, and risks. Those who cannot manage to go that far will be displaced within the country, but facing also the situation that I have described. Those who can afford it and who can manage it will try to go further and will try to come to places like Europe in search of security, in search of safety, running for their lives. Now, when they get here, we face here very difficult legal issues. Today, I've been um, discussing with several authorities that are dealing with uh, asylum applications from Somali people. And they apply the definition of a refugee that is contained in the 1951 Refugee Convention, which, if you read, talks about well-founded fear of persecution for a reason that is related to race, belonging to a political group uh, or a social group, etc., etc. The interpretation of this definition excludes from the refugee status people who are fleeing conflict. And what the authorities consider is that there needs to be an individual and targeted persecution against one person in order for this person to qualify as a refugee. So if they don't qualify as refugees, they become illegal aliens in the country where they are residing. Now, the situation is so serious that in recent times there have been some developments at the European level 
that talk about alternative or complementary forms of protection, normally applying a protection regime that is more limited than the, than the protection regime afforded by the 1951 Convention, but that would allow the people at least to stay in the country, but not recognizing rights like family reunification. So the person stays here but cannot bring his or her family. No access to work or to jobs. So it's dependent on assistance. So this, it's very limited, but at least there's some uh, movements in the direction of recognizing that there are people fleeing conflict that need some kind of protection. And we hope that this uh, will uh, develop uh, further. Another issue that um, is raised by the asylum applications is what we call internal flight alternative. Some uh, asylum authorities consider that, for example, somebody who wants to flee Mogadishu could go to Somaliland and be protected enough to stay there and not need to come all the way to the UK, to Belgium, or to France. Now, if we go back to the idea that Somaliland considers itself an independent country and that there are these clan issues, we need to understand that it's not a real option for somebody coming from Mogadishu to stay in Somaliland and enjoy enough protection and stay there. This is another issue that we raise and that we discuss. There's an issue of return of rejected asylum seekers back to Somalia. Because if, if an asylum claim is denied, I said before, this person becomes an illegal alien, therefore subject to deportation back to his or her country. Now, is it right to deport somebody back to Mogadishu or to Kismayo in the current circumstances? Of course not. Can we deport back somebody originally from Mogadishu back to Somaliland? No. But these are issues that uh, are very much high in uh, the agenda. And today, uh, as part of the discussions that we've had in the course of the day, we had a meeting, the last meeting, with uh, the immigration judges that are dealing with these cases, and they recognized and they granted that they lack the information that is necessary for them to really appreciate the uh, reasons behind, behind this uh, attempt. This concept uh, of uh, interpretation of the refugee definition as individual persecution was solved in Africa in 1969 when we had the wars of independence. And there, in the 1969 OAU Convention, after repeating the same definition contained in the 51 Convention, the African countries added a paragraph that considered refugees also people fleeing from generalized violence and external aggression or events seriously disturbing public order. So the issue is solved in Africa. But what happened? Kenya closed its borders. 
Ethiopia has its own problems and it's not allowing Somalis to come in. And there are no other borders except Yemen crossing the sea. So even this expanded more generous definition is not uh, applicable in the OAU convention in the African context today. What happens with those who stay in Somalia? There's no international convention as such for the protection of IDPs. What there exists is what we call the guiding principles on internal displacement, which is a collection of principles drawn from otherwise um, binding international documents, human rights documents, international humanitarian law, conventions, refugee law. The guiding principles define an IDP as a person that has left his or her house because of reasons of violence, but that has crossed an internationally recognized border. And that's an issue that we're dealing and discussing with Somaliland. Somaliland is saying, well, we are an independent country. We're saying, well, sorry, <coughs> but you have not been internationally recognized, so you are IDPs. But nonetheless, the this is a guiding principle for our intervention. The guiding principles highlight the responsibility of the national authorities to protect the primary responsibility of the national authorities to protect the IDPs. But this presupposes the existence of a government of the authorities that are willing and able to protect its people. It's not the case in Somalia. These guiding principles are now being translated into regional instruments. And my distinguished respondent today has been instrumental, for example, in the translation of the guiding principles into some African conventions. But again, this presupposes the capacity of the government to um, protect its, its own people. Uh, we are uh, now also seeing a process whereby there's a drive to translate the guiding principles into domestic legislation to have some sort of um, mandatory application of the principles, if not by international instruments, at least through national legislation. But this is a, a slow process that is long shot and again, it requires the capacity of the government to apply them. Um, I would just like to finish giving a couple of thoughts about some recent conceptual developments in what is called the issue of responsibility to protect that is an issue that has been brought up at the level of the General Assembly of the United Nations that has called again the national authorities, reminding them of their primary responsibility to protect the citizens, but that has recognized that in the absence of this protection by the national authorities, the international community has the responsibility to intervene. Gareth Evans, who is heading, he's the president of the International Crisis Group in a recent paper, has developed some ideas around this concept of um, 
responsibility to protect commonly known in the UN jargon as R2P. And he has identified six conditions. First, that there must be a just cause. I think that the Somalia case really is a just cause. Second, is that there should be the right intention to intervene. That is to say that there should not be hidden interest or political interest in the intervention in any country to protect the civilians. And the main objective should be to ensure the protection of the human beings who are suffering the consequences of the conflict. Third, that it should be a last resort option. All the previous attempts have to have failed. Somalia, we mentioned that before, has already gone through 14 attempts and we are nowhere near any solution to the situation of Somalia. Fourth, there needs to be proportional means and intervention. That is to say that there needs to be the force that is required to ensure the protection of the people. And that, in the case of Somalia, certainly uh, would mean an international peacekeeping operation. The sixth condition that uh, Gareth Evans has put forward is that there should be reasonable prospects for success. That where some important states wonder whether there will be prospect for a successful intervention, and that is what I think, holding back uh, any decision to intervene. And the sixth issue is the legality of the intervention. And I agree with Evans when he says that the only way to make this intervention not only legitimate because of the reasons that I have mentioned, but also legal, is that this intervention needs to be decided by the Security Council and not by individual countries or individual uh, governments that would or may have vested uh, interests. The UN Charter considers that the UN should decide interventions when um, international peace and stability are at stake. If we see this map of Somalia, we see the number of refugees in the region. We now see an Ethiopian intervention. We see the situation in Kenya deteriorating rapidly, and that is going to be reflected in the situation of Somalia and vice versa. So I think that undoubtedly, and that's my personal opinion, we have a situation that may have a negative impact on the international peace and stability. So I personally, and I'm forced to say here that this is my personal opinion, not necessarily representing the UNHCR opinion or position. I personally think that there needs to be a robust intervention on the part of the international community that would allow not only humanitarian interventions to alleviate the suffering of people, because that will not solve the problem. The problem will be solved when there's a political will to engage 
in a meaningful dialogue leading to a political process and once that is in place there needs to be a very serious effort on the part of the international community to rebuild the state of Somalia that has been collapsed and that has been totally destroyed. As long as we don't take that road, we will continue seeing the situation in Somalia deteriorating day by day. We will see more suffering and we will see the consequences of this conflict spreading not only in the region but all over the world. I will now welcome comments by Chaloka and thank you for your attention. Well, thank you very much for a very comprehensive coverage uh, of the state of affairs, both of IDPs uh, as well as the political situation in Somalia. And I'm not by any means clear where to start. Um, but I would rather situate, first of all, the comments uh, in the context of the broader aspects of IDPs and then come down to Somalia in that particular context. The, I think normally a state is founded on a geographically defined territory with a stable population and an effective government. And those elements are not just about statehood. They're also very important in the context of IDPs because a prima facie unstable population also results into an unstable state and an ineffective government. And that, to a very large extent, uh, is the problem uh, of Somalia to date. Uh, and that, in that particular architecture, there's a clash between traditional forms of authority and the modern form of authority as government. Um, and it follows that in order to have the modern form of authority, obviously the clans are in dispute about how to attain power and how to exercise it on behalf of the population. Uh, to that, I shall return towards the end of my comments. But for now, I would just like to state that the term IDPs is really a reinvention for an old phenomenon. The phenomenon was that of population transfers and exchanges in the periods uh, after the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire right up to the Second World War. And in the period of the Second World War, we saw uh, evictions and deportations, mainly of Jewish persons, targeted on the basis of their identity. And that episode led to a number of lessons. Uh, the first lesson, I think, was the criminalization of those acts under the Nuremberg system. And the second was the creation, uh, was the invocation of the principle of territorial integrity, which meant that once states became integral units, you could not likely uh, dismember them. And in that way, what were essentially population exchanges became internalized, and the phenomenon of IDPs in the 1990s has then emerged as populations that are subject to evictions and deportations internally, but not having to cross an international boundary. The next point to make is that although refugees and IDPs are similar, both in terms of the outflows uh, and their characteristics, but the situation of IDPs uh, is fundamentally political. That's not to suggest that refugees are not, but it is associated essentially with the quality of statehood itself. 
there is something happening to the state which is at odds, either at the level of the creation of states, as we saw during the period of the Ottoman Empire, or there's a dissolution of states and the reconstitution of new states, as in Bosnia, uh, Soviet Union, and ethnic cleansing leading to that in an attempt to create a mono-ethnic population or a population that is at least uh, configured to the territory of the state and to the system of power within the state. There's also the question of the political architecture of the state breaking down, which in relation to Somalia embodies all these aspects. So for those reasons, the start of IDPs is not simply a question of persons displaced within territories of states, but it is more fundamental about the existence of states, uh, their, their capacity to um, sustain themselves and to provide protection uh, to those within them. And it was not in the 1990s, after the end of the Cold War, that the term IDPs gained currency um, largely through the efforts of the United Nations to try and uh, strengthen the capacity to deliver assistance in view of the fact that loads and loads of populations were caught up in places of conflict and displacement. And in this sense, Somalia is both um, a victim and a product of the Cold War. Uh, a victim of the Cold War in the sense that, from my point of view, the events that lead to the present state of affairs were rooted in the Ogaden War, 1977-78. Uh, and Somalia's attack on Ethiopia, which then was communist, and the rallying by communist forces, including the Soviet Union, to counterattack, and Somalia not receiving its support from the Western allies that had promised its support from that point of view. Uh, and that, of course, weakened the regime, and Syed Barry was overthrown in 1991. And since then, uh, there's been a state of political uncertainty uh, within Somalia. And I think matters are complicated by the fact that the IDP population is not only protracted in terms of the problem, but there's also the perception that Somalia is a haven for al-Qaeda. And those two aspects of a displaced population and counter-terrorist measures clearly mean that there's an intervention of some sort always going on in Somalia, whether at the political or economic or social level, uh, behind the scenes. So the Ethiopian intervention did not happen just by the click of a finger. It was something that had been going on covertly uh, for some time. What then of um, the conception of IDPs itself? We speak of internally displaced persons as persons who are compelled to leave their places of normal residence within the state uh, due to the effects of armed conflict, um, cross violations of human rights, environmental causes, and who have not crossed an international boundary, uh, and are thus distinct from refugees uh, in that particular sense. That connotes an issue of identification and not one of status. Uh, refugees have status for specific reasons. IDPs <coughs> do not have status, but protection issues that were alluded to are important in the context of access to basic services, water, um, and life conditions. And what emerged in the 1990s in response to the IDP situation was, of course, the guiding principles on internal displacement, uh, which are carefully constructed, but often government's response was, uh, we are not bound by the guiding principles uh, at NRAT. And therefore, there has emerged a more uh, concise exercise uh, in Africa and to some extent in Latin America 
uh, to provide a framework of protection uh, for IDPs. The emerging framework draws on a combination of international humanitarian law, international criminal law, human rights, and international refugee law. International humanitarian law, largely because IDPs are victims of displacement contrary to the reasons of the conflict as prohibited by uh, international humanitarian law. And although international humanitarian law does tell us that in both um, international and non-international armed conflicts, uh, civilians are protected and the principle of distinction, proportionality are the tools of protection. In situations of displacement, because of reasons associated with the attempts to create a political architecture within the state, populations become the victims of conflict. Uh, and that, I think, is tragic, but it's an aspect that's relevant from the point of view of IHL. It's also relevant from the point of view of military necessity, that there may be population transfers um, on grounds of military necessity, and IHL, again, speaks to those issues. Because of the predominance of IHL, RE, and its advantage of being binding upon um, the persons involved in the conflict, the African framework draws heavily on IHL, moves to international criminal law, criminalization of displacement, uh, and also international criminal accountability of the persons involved, both organized armed groups, uh, as well as armed forces uh, of states, and it also builds on human rights, uh, accountability in terms of reparation, uh, treatment, and principles that relate to prevention from displacement, i.e. Um, genocide, torture, and human and degrading treatment. Those are the means often used to displace populations. Uh, ethnic cleansing, fairly systematic um, crimes against humanity involved in that particular regard. That exercise started about some two years ago and is still going on at this present moment in time. It also does incorporate the responsibility to protect, and for my sins, I was also involved in the responsibility to protect, and someday I'll tell the inside story. But it started more um, as a commission on intervention. And upon realizing that the term intervention was actually unsuitable because it did carry certain coercive tendencies, um, it was restructured to the responsibility to protect rather than as, as intervention. But this is more in the framework of the African Constitutive Act uh, because it is one of the few uh, treaties that does grant the right of a regional body, the African Union, to intervene uh, in the affairs of another state if there are gross violations of human rights and suspension of democracy and ABC. So to that extent, the trade framework does borrow uh, on that, but there is political sensitivity on the part of African states not to embrace the doctrine in its entirety. Um, and from someone who was involved with those efforts, I think the turning point, everything was going well, but the turning point uh, was Iraq, the second Gulf War, which blew, I think, the concept of responsibility to protect out of the water, because many states felt that, the smaller states, that is, felt that this would be an excuse uh, essentially for regime change in circumstances where uh, you know, those, those regimes were not favored by the intervening powers. There was mention of Kenya closing its borders um, and this raises an issue for those who look at IDPs on whether IDPs 
and their protection is actually a containment strategy, undermining the right to seek and enjoy asylum elsewhere, uh, in the sense that these are persons displaced within states and therefore they should stay within states. Most of the African states took the view that the protection of IDPs would not be a containment strategy, but that they wanted to retain control of their populations for political reasons. Uh, often, as refugees, they are prone to being infiltrated by armed groups. Armed groups heavily recruit from refugee camps without, in the absence of an adequate system of protection and separating out uh, armed elements. And they thought that if you have an IDP system of protection, the states of origin and nationality can deal with protection and keep away the armed groups and deprive them uh, of the source of recruitment um, of their own populations. That's one aspect. But it's also quite clear that in the circumstances used by, uh, by Kenya by closing its border, you do not have so much of a containment strategy because that would have been the strategy on the part of Somalia. Uh, but that this is an issue that actually relates to a state depriving individuals of the right to seek and enjoy asylum. There were other options open to it. Um, it proclaimed terrorism. But the strategy in those circumstances is to meet people at crossing points, put them in appropriate places and screen them. And the chances of catching the terrorists are probably higher than simply closing the border and displacing them. Two final points. Um, the approaches by European states in relation to refugees from Somalia and the fact that certain rights here are not fully respected. In my view, this is, again, something that stands from the unresolved debate on temporary protection uh, in Europe. You will recall that at the height of the Bosnia problem, uh, the approach taken was that in relation to victims of armed conflict, temporary protection would be the approach. And that approach has still remained uh, to victims of armed conflict elsewhere. But what is not resolved is the quality of protection, i.e., to what extent would other human rights be guaranteed uh, to these persons from the point of view of, say, family life or family reunion, uh, from the point of view uh, of employment uh, and the like. Different European states have different approaches at the height of the Bosnian problem, and they still do have um, those approaches. Alternative flight relocation, again, specific problems here. The first of which is that the principle assumes that there is a system of protection and therefore you can flee to an alternative place in Somalia where you will be protected. But in the absence of IDP protection, uh, clearly the whole question of alternative flight um, it becomes inapplicable. The second point is that there may not be an alternative place to relocate to, largely because of the ethnic configuration of the society and the nature of the conflict involved. And it might be easier to cross an international boundary and seek protection across the border than to run across territory where you have hostile uh, ethnic relationships which might endanger the safety of other persons. Uh, and in all the debates that relate to uh, alternative flight, those factors are not taken into account. The final point I'd like to make is on the issue of post-conflict reconstruction, which in the context of, say, Somalia and the reconstruction of the state would require a holistic international as well as regional strategy. Very often where there is armed conflict and displacement in Africa, the neighboring states have a hand to play. Sometimes it's a hidden hand, sometimes it's an open hand. 
Um, and you need to bring everyone to the table with a measure of responsibility and obligations uh, to abide by. The example that the International Humanitarian Law Project here has is that of the Great Lakes, where post-conflict reconstruction has taken uh, the format of a pact and legal agreement um, signed by all the 11 states involved uh, to provide a framework of responsibility and obligations. It then has distinct dimensions addressing specific aspects of reconstruction. In the first place, there's peace, security, and stability, and a protocol related to that, um, which requires states to deny space to armed groups. And in the second place, there's the framework of democracy, which is being tested severely uh, in Kenya as we speak. And again, that justifies the reason why that framework was adopted, that if states want to move away from conflict, they have to have open democratic systems in which armed groups can compete on open terms as well as opposition groups. And if you deny them that quality, then of course the alternative uh, is conflict, it is disorder, um, and Kenya, I think, is too graphic a story at this point in time. There's then the third element of reconstruction um, in economic terms, that peace and reconstruction comes at a cost, and there has to be some measure taken in the area of the economy in the entire region, largely because, as the UN report um, on the reform of the UN recognized very well, there's a network of conflicts whereby if you try to resolve one conflict at a bilateral level, you only succeed in displacing the conflict to another part of the region. Or you may resolve the problem in southern Sudan, but the conflict is then displaced to Darfur um, with the same kind of consequences as well as some of the main actors. Uh, and for that reason, you then need to have a holistic strategy uh, that addresses uh, economic factors and finally human security, i.e. issues of displacement, refugees, internally displaced persons, and of course sexual violence. You can't resolve problems without providing a framework uh, for return, integration, and rehabilitation, i.e. the stability of populations in order to stabilize states uh, is the main underlying current without, with regard to, to human security. I don't think I have done much justice to the entire uh, presentation that was done, but I thought I would pick those and highlight them as points of response, and others might come during the discussion. Thank you very much. Okay, we have about half an hour for a discussion, so uh, let me see your hands. Dominique, we'll take around a, a few questions. Please be brief, because we don't have too much time. So, Dominique. <laughs> Thank you. 
Thank you. Okay, sorry, I didn't see your hand before. I'm just going to take one more for now, if that's okay. Yeah, in the back.
Okay, one last one here. I'm sorry. And then I I'll just ask you, um, how do you think that you will win as for the international community, the trust from the Somali community or Somali people in Somalia after 18 years the people have been fighting or stood up, actually came together and stood up and uh, against the warlords and actually in six months the Hispanics have fought and took over uh, brought actually peace, stability and unity. And then actually the warlords will flee to Ethiopia, to other countries, the international community took their hand and brought them back to the people. So how do you think that Sumatra wins with trust and from Somali community in Somali from as international community? Okay. I'm not challenging now. If you are if if you can be really brief, we can maybe take a few more questions after a first one. Yeah. Well, these are all good questions, and some of them are indeed very difficult questions. I, I, I don't think, I don't know if I have the answers to all of them, but let me go very quickly uh, through them. Investment of content in support of the TFG. Um, President Yusuf, as I mentioned, was the president of Puntland before he became the president of, Yusuf, of uh, Somalia. And that has meant that Puntland is very much engaged in the TFG process. Now, ever since there has been a situation of conflict with or, uh, in which the TFG has been engaged, Puntland has supported the TFG, has deployed military forces to Mogadishu to support the TFG, has supported financially the TFG, and we have seen that uh, political issues affecting the TFG have a mirror situation in Puntland. And Puntland, as of, the, as of recent, has seen the, some uh, destabilization process that has have been translated into reshuffling of cabinet, into uh, the lack of uh, security uh, for humanitarian staff, etc., etc. So I'm afraid that uh, the situation in Puntland, I hope I'm wrong, but I, I'm, I'm afraid that if the TFG collapses, then uh, there will be some serious effects into the situation uh, in Puntland. Now, is the solution for Somalia a breakup of the country in different regions? Well, that's a, that's a question that is not only related to Somalia. That's, I think that that question is pertinent in other countries, Iraq with the Kurds and uh, uh, other uh, countries, the, the, the DRC with uh, the whole issue of the uh, east of the country, etc., etc. I personally don't think that a, uh, a solution to any situation is uh, this membership of uh, a government or this membership of a, of a country. But I do think that there are situations in which uh, some uh, regions have proven to be uh, able to uh, become a country. We've seen the case of Eritrea uh, separating from Ethiopia in the past. We've seen uh, East Timor. Uh, we've seen the uh, breakup of the uh, Soviet Union. We've seen uh, the former Yugoslavia. So there's no lack of examples of regions becoming countries in order to uh, uh, maintain some sort of statehood. And of course, uh, the current situation in Somalia, in my view, and that's my personal opinion, only reinforces 
the claims of uh, Somaliland <coughs> that they don't want to continue being part of, of uh, that. Uh, the role of the international community after 14 attempts, and if it's the right approach, I'm linking this with the last question. I think that we have all failed. So far, we have all failed, including the Somalis, because they are the ones who are fighting each other. It's not the international community fighting the war. It's them fighting their own war. And, of course, the solution has to go through a political settlement owned by the Somalis. But in the current circumstances, I think that that's not a realistic uh, prospect if there's no a very strong stand from the international community that somehow will foster, for the lack of a better term, a political will to solve the problems. And that's what is lacking, political will. If there's no political will, there will not be solution. And that's what is lacking. That is what we need to really somehow uh, find the way to bring the, all the, the parties to the conflict into, into uh, line. Uh, the opposition to the TFG have pledged that they will not be engaged in any meaningful political dialogue as long as Ethiopian troops remain there. Probably that's the first step, to find a way for the Ethiopians to withdraw from Somalia. And we need to support that process. And the Somali Prime Minister, uh, the Ethiopian Prime Minister has uh, himself declared recently here in London when he was interviewed by the BBC that he feels that they are trapped, that they cannot withdraw today because the situation in Somalia would get only worse, but that they don't want to continue that. But we, I think that we need to support the process uh, whereby we allow that, at least that first step to take place. Um, well, I did not raise the involvement of the U.S. and the U.K. in the intervention with the judges, but they did. <laughs> I will stop there. <laughs> um, but they are very conscious. And it's not a secret that uh, the, the American Army and Air Force has been actively engaged in some military activities in Somalia, have uh, bombed. Uh, areas in Kismayo and in Puntland uh, in pursuit of some elements that they perceive as uh, being part of uh, Al-Qaeda and uh, Chaloka mentions that this whole issue of Somalia is now being approached within, within the framework of the war on terror. And I think that that needs to change and that we have to overcome that approach in order to work out any solution. Uh, the lack of mention of Amazon. Sorry about that. That was my omission. I had it in my notes, but the time pressure just made me skip that. Um, I did mention that the UN does not feel that the conditions are right for a UN intervention and a UN peacekeeping mission. In Somalia, and that has been mentioned by the Secretary General himself when uh, he says when he said that uh, he was calling on a coalition of willing countries to come in and support the peacekeeping operation because he did not think that the conditions were right for a UN intervention as such and that the Security Council was not going to intervene. That being said, 
there are, and as we speak today, there are on the ground, and uh, Robert, you might confirm this, that there are some UN missions from headquarters in uh, Kenya and in Somalia preparing for an eventual UN intervention. Now, short of that, the UN has authorized the African Union to, in the meantime, send a peacekeeping operation. The African Union did intervene, authorizing 8,000 troops to be deployed on the ground. So far, we have seen deployment of Ugandan forces, 1,600 soldiers, and last month, or this, at the beginning of January, there was a group of 100 Burundian soldiers that have joined uh, these forces. That's definitely not enough, and that's definitely not going to uh, substitute the need for a much more stronger uh, peacekeeping operation. Now, uh, for some time, the AMISOM, that's the name of the African Union mission to Somalia, the AMISOM troops were spared of the conflict. And to the point that whenever we international staff of international organizations were going to Somalia, we were using AMISOM forces and armored vehicles to travel around Mogadishu and in the surrounding areas. Unfortunately, that changed recently, and AMISOM has been declared as a legitimate target of jihad by the ICUs, and they have been attacked. That means that we are now not able to count on them to protect us, because if we are protected by somebody who is targeted, then we become a target as well. So it's also affecting the humanitarian intervention. Um, well, there are questions about uh, Somaliland, and uh, uh, again, uh, Somaliland, as I see the situation today, they are just sitting on the bench saying, well, see, we don't want to be part of that mess. We want recognition. We want our independence to be accepted. Who has to accept and to recognize Somaliland? an international process. It has to start with countries in the region. Uh, the prospects are not that good because Ethiopia, for once, uh, will not accept uh, the idea after they lost Eritrea that they might eventually lose uh, the, the Somali region and the Oromo Liberation Front, etc., uh, etc. Et uh, Kenya is facing the similar kind of issues. Uh, so countries in the region are not that keen on recognizing uh, Somaliland because of their own internal process. Who is Ethiopia accountable to? Well, that's a very good question. I think that they are accountable to the people. And well, the people have lost confidence on the TFG because they see the TFG as the government that invited the enemy to come in for, to protect them and not to protect the people. But I think that all the forces intervening in the conflict in Somalia are accountable to the people, and they should be accountable to some sort of international mechanism that would, should be in place to call them into order. Unfortunately, that is not the case. Uh, the ICRC, the International Committee for the Red Cross, is normally the organization that is tasked with the implementation of the Geneva Conventions to protect civilians in situation of conflict. The ICRC representative in Somalia 
very honestly says that he cannot discharge his responsibilities in that context because it's a very difficult uh, situation. The expulsion of journalists uh, from Somaliland, well, I'm not saying that Somaliland is a paradise either. Somaliland uh, has its own limitations. It's an, there's a democratic process. There are three political parties. Uh, they have had elections, and normally the results of the elections are one-third for each party. Parliamentary elections show these results, so that's you know, good signs. But they don't have the capacity on the ground to actually deliver the services that are required from a state. And if you go to a ministry, you will find the minister, the director general, and two or three staff in Hargeisa, the capital. But you will not see any uh, government official up in the bushes or in the, in the provinces or in, in, in areas outside of Hargeisa. They don't have the capacity. And they uh, depend very much on the assistance provided by the international community. One thing that Somaliland complains about is that the fact that they have not been recognized does not qualify them for bilateral assistance, government-to-government -government assistance. And they are now visiting different countries, and I was told today that they visited the UK uh, a few weeks ago and made this case. They said, well, we are an independent country. We don't want to continue being part of that mess, but we need support bilaterally, government to government, and treat us as a legitimate government and as independent uh, government. So there we also have some issues to, to consider. Um, yeah, I mean, the situation has gotten worse by the day and will continue to get worse as, lo as long as there is no effective change of direction in the way the situation in Somalia is being addressed. I don't have a magic formula, I'm sorry, but I think that we need to bring together uh, Somali people, we need to bring together the parties to the conflict, we need to bring together the international community and agree on terms uh, for the way forward. But I do think that events like this in which at least understanding of the situation or discussions about the situation help creating a consciousness that eventually can be translated into pressure to governments for interventions in the right direction. But it's, it's going to be a very difficult process and a long one. I'm not expecting miracles to happen. They will not. And things are bound to get worse before they get any better. I don't know, Chaloka, you would like to address? I think it's the question that um, was asked about why the African Union does not have um, a mutual defense pact along the lines of the Great Lakes. Um, but actually, it does. And for three months, I spent some time reviewing the architecture of the African Union in the context of the debate on whether it should move towards the United States of Africa or not. And crucial to that debate was to try and make it more effective. Um, and I think the things that we found out generally is that often principle is sacrificed on the altar of expediency uh, for political reasons. The African Union could have taken a very decisive um, 
stand in relation to Kenya and told them democracy is one of the central elements of the Constitutive Act <coughs> and insofar as there's a disputed election result and we don't know who won, the government of Kenya cannot take its seat at the African Union. And if the UN followed that, very quickly things would begin to move within Kenya. But you've got a degree of impunity tolerated by the African Union to that extent, and that's, that's what I mean. The problem in terms of post-conflict reconstruction is largely about capacity, resources, and the structure itself is largely dysfunctional. Um, the engine, i.e. the commission of the union, is dysfunctional, and decisions are not implemented. The review indicated that ever since its existence from 2001, the African Union has made about 200 decisions. None of those decisions has been implemented at all. They're simply on paper. So seriousness in terms of how to move forward uh, is an issue. Uh, in terms of um, the, the main why not deployment uh, in Somalia and the problems associated with that, under the Constitutive Act and the African Peace and Security Council, they have a framework on peace and security. Uh, they do have a framework for an African standby force, uh, but partly an issue of resources, partly an issue of organization. They decided that the African standby force would rely on constitutive brigades uh, drawn from sub-regions, ECOWAS in West Africa, uh, insofar as you have SADC in Southern Africa, and whatever you can gobble up in East Africa between the ECA uh, and EGAD, the Intergovernmental Authority. But once you have a standby force in East Africa upon which the African Union will rely upon, comprising Uganda, Ethiopia, and others, then the problem continues because of the fact that they are part of the problem. Um, and I would rather that the African Union had its own complete professional army if they wanted to go in that direction once they had the political courage to do it um, they would have drawn from different regions but have made sure that it's under the command of the African Union itself and not descending to the different sub-regions which then get protracted into local problems very often in which they are to involve. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to take the rather unorthodox position to just quickly hear very briefly these, the other people who want to um, intervene. We're running out of time and you could make very brief, probably not answer their questions, but let's hear what they have to say. <laughs> Here you go. Now, hi. Um, two questions. One is, as we speak in Somalia, Somalia, there's a two-way formation taking place right now. And we talk about the deteriorating situation in Somalia in 2015. Do you think why this thing is happening in the situation has no power to control or to minimize the situation? Or they know we're going to Yes.
and repressed attacks against the United Nations without taking into account of the principle of proportionality as regards to the various violations which I just uh, that can be described as war crimes. What is the position of the UNHCR? Thank you. Yes. I am Simon Moyer, and basically my question is, are the conditions in the camps, you know, the threshold of Article 3? And the second comment I was going to make is that um, the tribunals are now faced with arguments about internal conflict uh, arguments under um, the European Qualifications Directive. So that's another reason I think we've got any questions from the tribunal. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Um, we don't have much time, but maybe you can just sort of sum up and respond to that. <laughs> well, definitely, I don't think that we can say that Somali people don't have the right to be protected. That would be unacceptable from any point of view. I think that we need to find a way to enforce that protection by those who are violating the right. Now, what is UNHCR doing about it? Um, well, we don't have weapons. We cannot stand in between a soldier with a gun and a civilian that is about to be killed. We cannot do that. But what we're trying to do is to at least make these violations known. We are engaged in a very um, uh, constant uh, effort of advocacy. We are feeding uh, with information that we are collecting uh, from partners on the ground about the, these violations, uh, reports that are going to the Security Council, reports that are going into the reports of the um, incidents that are going into the report of the Special Envoy uh, for Somalia, uh, the human rights experts, uh, Amnesty International. Uh, we have had discussions and we feed uh, information with them and we've changed information and they provide also some public reports that are, are uh, uh, confirming the, 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 the incidents that we are reporting. So we are engaged in advocacy efforts. And we, of course, try to intervene vis-a-vis -vis the different parties to the conflict and asking them to respect some basic principles. Now, unfortunately, this is not enough and this is a very frustrating situation for us, not only for me as representative of the UNHCR, but for all of us working in a situation that we see deteriorating day by day, in which all our efforts to alleviate the suffering of the people are not having any real and positive impact on the people because of the powers that are uh, engaged on, on that. Um, well, yeah. We could draw some comparison with other situations. At the end of the day, the political decisions of the UN are taken by governments who are members of the UN. The UN is the United Nations. We are one arm of the UN. We are the public servants of the UN which try to do our job. But the political decisions are taken by governments 
represented first and foremost in the Security Council when dealing with these issues and or by the General Assembly when they meet once a year to review the most relevant issues. So it's governments that need to be brought to uh, this issue and to uh, take a very clear position on the reform. Thank you very much. And just before we close, I, I would like to tell you that we're having another event, the Crisis States Research Center, on Thursday, where Jonathan Steele will be speaking to his new book, Just Hot Off the Press. It was, he started serializing a summary uh, or extracts from the book in The Guardian last week. And, and, and the name of the book is Defeat Why They Lost Iraq. So we invite you all to come on Thursday, and that's in the old theater at 630. Uh, I mean, the, the, the Hong Kong Theater uh, at uh, 6.30 on Thursday evening. So without further ado, I'd like to, to thank um, uh, Mr. Patochi for, for that very insightful roundup and also all of you for your very important contributions and, and, and questions and uh, to, to Loko Bayani as well for your articulate uh, insights into the regional and legal dimensions of this. So thank you very much.